Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future, as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. So today we have Catherine joining us, and we've known Catherine for uh, five years? Something like that. I think it's about five years. Um, and we're going to talk about Ezekiel 37, but before we go into that, and we may go into some other things as well, but before we start, can you just tell us who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Catherine, and uh, I live in Israel with my husband and three children. I was born in England, but I made Aliyah. I moved up to the land of Israel around 15 years ago. Um, until February of this year, I was very active as a tour guide, but because our borders are closed, that's not what I'm doing right now. I'm finding other ways to be able to uh, share my love of the land of Israel with the nations. And uh, I am also a harpist, and I teach uh, children to be able to worship the Lord with the harp. And by the way, we're going to speak about Ezekiel 36, I hope, not 37. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um oh, oh and before we go too much further as well tell people where they can um see what you're doing contact information website all that stuff sure so i have a channel on youtube that's just my name katherine van der beek and you can find heart worship there and if you want to find written materials you can go to israel and the nations.org and you can find me on facebook too perfect you're right Ezekiel 36. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd just throw something in there quick, go right, see how quickly you can adjust. <laughs> we can do that too if you want. <laughs> okay. Um, did you want to say anything? No, just that I'm really, really pleased to have Catherine here. I mean, we see her as a very dear friend as well. And we have learned so much from you, Catherine, so much. I well, mean, it's been transformed. Yeah, well, it's transformational in our lives and we would not be who we are today without our relationship with you. So I'm excited for you to share some of your wisdom and insight with everybody else. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Okay, so do you want to start then, um, take us on on a bit of a journey of your thoughts um, with Ezekiel 36? Sure. So one of the main themes of Ezekiel 36 is um, the theme of the return of the people back to their ancient homeland. And uh, the prophet is not only speaking about any part of the land of Israel of today, but he's speaking about a very specific part of the land. And he begins by speaking actually directly to the mountains of Israel and to the streams and to the valleys. And actually one thing that um, the Lord has really convicted me of is that I am not allowed to drive up and down the Jordan Valley and through the center of the country without proclaiming the entire chapter every single time. So I'm faithful to do that every time I drive through the land. But I think there are two sentences that would really stick out in the times that we are living in and be pertinent to what we find in the news and the media, in particular before Corona, after Corona, everybody kind of forgot about it. But before Corona, something very big in the news was the idea of Israel exerting sovereignty over the Jordan Valley and over some of the Jewish settlements in the center of the country as part of the so-called um, deal of the century. But if I can just read um, the first couple of verses, because, um, because of these two things that really stick out. So he begins saying, 
you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. He's literally speaking to the mountains. And actually from my window, just to the right of where I'm sitting, I'm literally looking at the mountains of Israel and I'm sitting in them. Thus says Adonai Elohim, the enemy has said against you, aha, even the ancient high places have become our possession. And I'm going to go back to that sentence in just a minute because I want to first read you the second part. And so he continues, therefore prophesy and say, thus says Adonai Elohim, because they ravaged and crushed you from every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations. And now wait for it. And you became the talk and the evil gossip of the people. Now, just for fun, a couple of days ago, I stuck into Google um, settlements or annexation or one of these words. And when I did so, I certainly pulled up the gossip and the evil talk of the people. If you look at the world's media and how it speaks about Judea and Samaria, the central part of the land, the part of the land that after King Solomon dies is simply called Israel, the part of the land that Jesus, Yeshua, refers to as Judea and Samaria. The international media has almost nothing good to say about it and nothing good to say about the people who have come back to live in this part of the country in faithfulness to the word of God. So let me just read for you a couple of the sentences that the international media said um, about this part of the land, um, because some of them are really quite shocking. So first of all, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president of the Palestinian Authority, what he had to say about it was, Abbas warns of a third intifada. In other words, if we declare sovereignty, we are going to be attacked with suicide bombs and stabbings and all of the rest of the things that we endured in the first and the second intifada. And then a group of former world leaders warn against Israel's annexation plan. Don't you dare do this, otherwise we are going to hit you with these kind of punishments. And the third one, the EU says it will not recognize annexation. And the fourth one, this is maybe the most frightening, said the EU court rules that Israel must label us from Judea and Samaria. Now, let's think back a little bit to the time that Adolf Hitler comes into power in Europe. And one of the things that he began with was stigmatizing the Jews, sticking a golden star on them. And now we're not talking about sticking stars on people, but we're talking about labeling products that have come from the central part of the land. Actually, Judea or Judah is where we get the name Jew from in the first place. And now we must label them for the nation so that people can choose not to buy their products from there. But let's go backwards just a moment because I skipped over the first part where it said that the enemy has said, aha, even ancient high places have become our possession. So what does that mean? And how is it applicable to the times that we are living in? Well, actually it is so applicable if you think about it. What are the ancient high places if we think about the Bible and we think about Judea and Samaria? Well, we're talking about the places where God made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're talking about biblical Shem or Shechem. We're talking about biblical Bethel, the place of the ladder going up to heaven and uh, Jacob sees the angels ascending and descending on that ladder. Think about um, Jericho, where the Israelites come when they first come in the land, the first city they conquer. 
Think about Bethlehem. Think about um, Hebron, the place where the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the faith are buried. And all of these places are in the possession of the Palestinian Authority. And let's uh, sit there for just a moment, because I think people in the nations often think that this is a battle between two people. And why can't it be fair? And why can't there be two lands for two peoples? But actually, that is not the battle. The battle is a spiritual one. Because whenever something comes into the hands of the Palestinian Authority, by default, it becomes an Islamic stronghold. So that sentence, aha, even the ancient high places have become our possession. It's so very real today. Even the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that should be under Israeli sovereignty is actually ruled by an Islamic religious trust called the Waqf. A slightly strange word, but it basically means a religious trust instead of being under Israeli sovereignty. So all of these places today are under the dominion of Islam. And so you have those two parts that we just read, the evil gossip of the people and then the ancient high places being the possession. And you have all of these things that the media is saying. But um, let's go for a moment to this idea of the, the peace plan of Donald Trump and also to the idea of annexation. What does annexation mean? Well, actually, the word is not even being used in the way that it should be, because in international law, the word annexation is almost implying that you're taking by force something that never belonged to you in the first place. Now, in order to understand if that is true in this case or not, we need to understand a little bit of the historical context of Judea and Samaria and how it came to be under the Palestinian Authority and what it would actually mean in practical terms if Israel would exert sovereignty over it or in inverted commas, annex it. So the story actually begins quite a long time ago. It begins at the beginning of the 1900s when in 1920 in a conference called the San Remo Conference, the land that was to be given to Israel for the Jewish national homeland was actually assigned. And that land, if you look on it, look at a map to see how big it was, it was actually enormous. It included the whole of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan of today. It included the Golan Heights. It included Judea and Samaria. It included Jerusalem and so on and so on. So according to international law, what was uh, ratified in the San Remo Conference is actually still binding. So by law, it actually belongs to us. So how did we lose it? Well, if we fast forward to 1947, what happened in the partition plan for Palestine is that by then the land that was promised to the Jewish people shrank greatly. The land that was actually given in that plan was tiny. And we rejoiced in 1948 when we became a nation because we were fulfilling Isaiah 66 where he talks about how a nation will be born in a day. And it's so exciting. But on the other side, we have Joel 4, where the prophet is mourning because the land has been divided up. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, because there was supposed to be an international corridor going to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was supposed to be in international hands. And so it was not yet in Jewish hands. And then what happens um, is that in, uh, in the war of independence that results after Israel uh, declares herself as a nation, 
the surrounding nations attack her, and as a result, Jordan capture Jerusalem, and they capture Judea and Samaria, and they occupy her for 19 years until 1967. And in 1967, we have the Six Days War. Israel again is attacked from the south. She's attacked by Egypt. She's attacked by Jordan. She's attacked by Syria. She's attacked by all of these surrounding armies. And as a result of defending herself, she regains Jerusalem and she regains the territory that was already assigned to her in the 1920s. And the UN goes into shock because the UN really does not want her to have dominion over what the world calls the West Bank. The West Bank, by the way, simply means the West Bank of the Jordan River. And so what the UN actually does is to write a law so that um, in international law, it can be explained why Israel cannot have these areas. And that's how the term occupied came into place, occupied for Judea and Samaria, occupied for the Golan Heights in the north, and so on and so on. So that's how we get to the situation today, where if I, as a Jew, want to live in Judea and Samaria, I'm termed a settler. And in the international ears, settler is a bad word, right? Settler is used to imply that we should not be there. Well, hang on a minute. Shouldn't that ring alarm bells also? When was the last time we couldn't live anywhere? During uh, 1970, uh, sorry, 1725, Catherine the Great basically rounds up the Jews and says, you can't live west of here, you can't live east of here. She places us in an area called the Pale of Settlement. Actually, that's where my family are from. They eventually fled to the west, to England, and then um, later on I made Aliyah and came back to live in the land of Israel. And then if we think, of course, of the Holocaust, the Jewish people were rounded up into ghettos. And now in 2020, there are parts of our own land where we are not allowed to live, anywhere that's Palestinian Authority Area A, and anywhere in Judea and Samaria, if we live there, we are termed settlers, which has such a, a terrible connotation. So um, if we fast forward to um, this time and President Donald Trump and this uh, deal of the century, this peace plan, the idea or part of the idea is that Israel will get to exert sovereignty over the Jordan Valley and over many of the Jewish settlements. Now, that would simply be agreeing with what already happened in 1967 and what already happened in 1920 in the San Remo Conference. It's not actually trying to um, change anything um, from what is right according to international law. And yet internationally, this is portrayed in, in such um, a terrible light. So I think this is something really important and crucial that is happening right now, but it has really been um, pushed away by the media only focusing on on this COVID-19 and all of the fallout of that. It, it's it's um, interesting hearing you say that. I, I never like to say the word settlements. When I say it, I call them resettlements. Mm -hmm. I actually found, I don't know, we're reading scripture somewhere and they said they resettled. And, and I think the words that we use are very powerful. I mean, they're very powerful anyway, but especially with Israel, there's certain words we use that almost by saying those words, we're coming into agreement 
with the dialogue that the world is making, not with the dialogue of scripture. Yes, I would agree with that. So, you know, as far as we're concerned, they're, they're resettlements. So I think it's really, it, and, it, and it's, do you find it, how do you marry all this with the fact that God has promised Israel a land? And the boundaries are set in scripture. So there's some people that would say, well, God promised it, let's go and take it. There's some people that say you've got to sit back and wait for God to give it to you. So how do you marry all those those thoughts? Mm, That's a really great question. I was actually also wanting to go back to Abraham because that's really when this whole story begins. And it ties to another story, the story of Isaiah 19, and maybe we'll get there by the end of this podcast I'm not sure that's another big and beautiful subject but Abraham actually is called by God from Ur of the Chaldees it's basically the most eastern point of the Euphrates River and he makes this journey from there into Haran of Turkey and then he goes all the way down to the south God brings him into what was then the land of Canaan and in Genesis 15 that's when he promises him this land as an inheritance for him and his descendants, and he gives them the borders of the land. And the borders of the land are enormous at that point. They're from the Euphrates River in the north all the way down to the Nile in Egypt. And I think the only point historically when those borders have been realized would be under the reign of both King David and uh, King Solomon. And they had these enormous um, boundaries for their kingdom at that time. But when you ask the question, I immediately thought of Joshua. And when Joshua is coming into the land after the Israelites have come from the Exodus in Egypt and they've made this long journey probably through Saudi Arabia, through the deserts, and eventually they come into the land, God doesn't give them the entire land all in one go. And he says that it would be overwhelming for them and they would have to face all of these enemies all in one go. And I felt like the redemption of the land in the days that we're living in is is a similar thing. It's little by little. It's square meter by square meter. It's not the whole thing in one go. And I don't think God is wanting us to go and blast all of the other people out of the land and expel them because he has a plan for them too. And that's why Isaiah 19 is so beautiful because he has a plan for all of the nations of the Middle East to be a blessing in the middle of the earth. and so I, I feel like this um, possible annexation of the Jordan Valley and the settlements, it's another little piece. And then there'll be another little piece. The boundaries of the land are growing and growing and growing. But if we look at scripture, we can see that there is this pattern of the Israelites being in the land and then they're expelled from the land. And then they're back in the land and then they're expelled from the land. Why does this happen? They're expelled um, after the kingdom is divided, when King Solomon dies, and the Israelites fall into ever greater sin before God. And eventually he says, "Uh uh-uh, this is a holy land for a holy people. And if you're not willing to live according to my law, and if you're not willing to worship me, then I am going to expel you from this land. But eventually his heart breaks and he wants to bring his people back to the land. And if we go back to Ezekiel 36, um, you can really feel the heart of the father. Verse 19, he says, I scattered them among the nations. So they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and their deeds. I judged them. 
So God is making it absolutely clear that the punishment for idolatry, the punishment for worshiping other gods, is that he evicts us from the land. And then he says, wherever they went among the nations, they profane my holy name. Since it was said about them, these are the people of Adonai, yet they had to leave his land. And this is maybe counterintuitive for many Christians today when we think about how do we bring glory to God? How do we sanctify the name of the Lord? And I'm not saying that this is the only way by any means, but God is very clear that this is one way because in verse 21, he immediately says, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations wherever they went. And then he says, basically, to the house of Israel, I'm not bringing you back to the mountains of Israel for your sake. It's not because you're so special, Israel. Remember that I chose you because you were the least among the nations. And I called you stubborn, and I called you stiff-necked. And eventually, I even had to divorce you because I was so fed up of your, uh, your idolatry, basically. Um, but then he says, I'm doing this for the sake of my holy name, which you profane among the nations wherever you went. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned among them. But why is he doing this? This is even more counterintuitive. He's doing it so that the nations will know that I am Adonai. So he's bringing us back to the mountains of Israel to bring glory to his name and so that the nations will know that he is God. And just one small example of this is that some of the other people groups living in the center of land have seen this whole thing taking place and the vineyards flourishing and the olive groves flourishing. And they've said, wow, your God, he really is God. So there's something in this movement of the Jewish people back to the central part of the country that is bringing glory to him, that is sanctifying his name and is also bringing the other people back to him and I think this was God's heart already from the book of Genesis. He didn't choose the Jewish people for the sake of the Jewish people. He even says he brought us out of Egypt for the sake of the Egyptians, that they might know that he is God. So in, in God's economy, Israel is always this tool in his hands to reveal himself. He wants to be known so much by the nations. And that's really the, the heartbeat that I get from Ezekiel 36 is God's desire to be known by everybody, but he he does it in this in this way of bringing back the people to the uh, bringing back his people to the central part of the land, and I think that's why at the beginning we have this incredible resistance. Remember how um, in the first two verses it says, "Aha! The enemy has set against you. The ancient high places have become our possession, and that the mountains of Israel have become the talk and the evil gossip of people." Whatever God is truly doing will experience great opposition. And I think that we're seeing both in the days that we're living in. Both we're seeing God's plan coming to fruition as the Jewish people are coming up from the nations back to their ancient homeland. And we're seeing the, the resistance in the world's media. We're seeing people coming back to Judea and Samaria being portrayed as being aggressive and... Um, just that they shouldn't be there, that they have no right to be in the center of the land, um, and so on. Before you move on, um, looking from the outside in, I remember when you took us actually into Judea and Samaria and we were driving through all this land and you said to us, look how big it is. 
and and um, you know we you can have an image that the Jewish people have gone in and there's this tiny bit of land and they're taking it away from the Palestinians, whereas it's just not so. It, it's there's mountains, there's there's space there for Jewish people to be able to live without depriving anybody of the, of their ability also to live there. Um, and another thing that that struck me, we went actually into one of the resettlements. And again, you can have an image of some wild people living in this settlement, which sort of reminded me of, well, I don't, of something wild going on. But there's small townships, there's schools, there are children going to school, there are shops, there, there are people living normal lives in these places. And, and I think, you know, to, to get a clear picture of what this place looks like, brings some of the um, the narrative down to at least some sort of normality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And God is definitely not done with bringing his people back yet. I believe that there are around 700,000 who have been brought from the lands of the north. And in Jeremiah 16, the prophet Jeremiah actually speaks about how um, the Aliyah from the north will be even greater and from all other nations, but he particularly mentions the north will be greater than that of the Exodus and that we will no longer even speak about the Exodus because this Aliyah will be so great. And this is really hard to imagine because every year in the land, we still celebrate the Passover. It's still a really big deal. It's mandated in scripture. So how can we not do it? But he says, hey, guys, one day you're going to forget about this and you're going to celebrate the great exodus from the lands of the north and from the surrounding lands. And I believe that on the face of the earth today, there are still around 23 million people who would have the right ethnically to come and live back in the land. So there is still a huge movement of people that we can expect. I think today there are around 7 million uh, Jewish people living in the land, so a little more than were murdered um, in the Holocaust under uh, Nazi Germany and other nations also. Um, so Hitler really failed because our land is flourishing today. It's full of children and old men and young people and uh, we still have plenty of space for the other 23 million to come home. Although the prophet Jeremiah actually says that one day we'll have so many in the land that actually the borders will have to increase to accommodate them all. But what's very interesting, and I think this also relates back to um, the rise of anti-Semitism again today on the earth, is that in Jeremiah 16, he says that God will use fishermen and then he will use hunters to bring the people back. And this maybe sounds slightly strange. What is he talking about? Well, I think what he's talking about, we could perhaps say that the fishermen are the people that warn that will say to the Jewish people, hey, your time is up, it's not safe here anymore. And in 1897, there was exactly this type of person, his name was Theodore Hetzel. And he began to see that the writing was on the wall for European Jewry, and he started to warn them and say, hey guys, your place is not here anymore. You need to prepare to leave. And I often wonder what would have happened if they had all believed him? What would have happened if they'd all seen the writing on the wall? What would have happened if they had come then? And was the great opposition from the nations at that time, the opposition to God's plan to bring them back, was it the enemy trying to obliterate the Jewish people before they ever even um, came back to the land? 
so the fishermen are those that warn, but then the hunters are sadly those that are are really pursuing and persecuting and, and murdering the Jewish people and forcing them to leave. And I think living in Israel, we see the writing on the wall again for the Jews of America, for the Jews of Europe. The situation seems to be becoming more serious, although um, speaking to some people in the States and so on, they seem to be not aware of that at all, which is very interesting because from our perspective over here, we, we're hearing about um, a great increase in incidents that are happening in the nations and I believe that God is using these things to bring his people home and what is really interesting is that he is using the situation with COVID-19 to bring them home as well because what has actually happened is that in Israel only 350 people have possibly died of COVID we don't know if they really did because Everyone knows the story of how we don't really know what is going on, these death certificates, and if they had underlying causes and so on. But still, as a proportion of the population, that number is extremely low. If we compare that to the Jews who have died outside of the land of Israel, the proportion then among the other populations is enormous. And it's making the Jewish people ask themselves, hang on a minute, why are the Jews who are in the land of Israel safe? And why are they not dying? And why are they being taken care of better? And is their healthcare system better? So what the Alia agencies are seeing and anticipating is that there is going to be a huge spike in the number of Jewish people who are applying to come home. And I think right now, already the numbers for Brazilian Jews, Argentinian Jews, and South African Jews has increased. There's been more coming back in this season of COVID-19 than there was uh, before. So this is a very interesting uh, byproduct of what has been going on in the nations. Um, people may have picked up from what you're saying, but can you just explain, there's a word you've used a few times, and I think some people listening may not know what it means, but alia, to make alia, can you just explain what that means? Yes, of course. I'm sorry, I should have done that at the beginning. So That's right, it gives me a question to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't let you get a word in edgeways, right? No, you're good. <laughs> so what alia literally means is ascent. It means to go up. So if we think about the book of Psalms, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but at the end of the book of Psalms, 120 to 134 are labeled the Psalms of Ascent. So why did Psalmist probably David call them the Psalms of Ascent? Well, the Jewish people were required to come up to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the Feast of the Lord. That's, of course, from the reign of King David before. After that, they would be required to go to Shiloh or to wherever the tabernacle was. But after King David is king in Jerusalem, they're required to come up to Jerusalem. And for those of you that have been in Israel, you know that from whichever direction you approach Jerusalem, you have to go up. It's just a function of how the mountains are that surround Jerusalem. So if you come from the Dead Sea, from the east, you have to go up. If you come from the coastal plain and pass through what's known as the Shkalao, the lowlands, you have to go up to come to Jerusalem. And for the Jewish people, they don't only see it as being a physical ascent, they also see it as being a spiritual ascent because you're going up to the city of the great king. You're going up to the place where one day Yeshua is going to descend and place his feet on the Mount of Olives. There is no other city like Jerusalem on the face of the earth. So you're going up to that wonderful place. And having come to the outskirts of Jerusalem, you will get to a place that today is known as the city of David. 
It's the city that he conquered from the Jebusite. And right at the bottom of that city is a place called the Pool of Shiloh, or the Pool of Siloam that's mentioned in John chapter 9, where um, there's a blind man and Yeshua wants to heal him and he makes a mix of mud and spit and puts it in his eyes, tells him to go and wash in the Pool of Shiloh. So that pool actually is a big ritual bath and the Jewish people would wash in there and then they would make the final ascent up to the Temple Mount to present their sacrifices and themselves before the Lord. So that's why it would be called the final ascent. It's the final part of your journey. And your journey could have started in the Galilee or by the time of Acts chapter 2, actually your journey could have started anywhere on the face of the earth because Jews would come from every nation where they were scattered up to Jerusalem. So that's the ancient and the biblical use of the word. But in modern Hebrew today, we're also using the word to mean Jewish people who were born in another nation, who have decided to make Israel their homeland and who have come up out of those nations to Israel, just like I did, just like my husband did. And uh, they are making Israel their home in, in the modern day period. You've mentioned uh, a few times uh, Isaiah 19 then. So... Uh, why don't we transition a bit and, and explore some about, you know, the, the purpose for the nations around Israel. Okay, so let me just read you a couple of verses so that Daphne is giving me a really big smile now. She knows that this is one of my favorite portions of scripture <laughs> because we're living in the middle of it and we get to experience it and be a part of it. So it really excites me. So Isaiah 19 verse 23 says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come to Egypt, and the Egyptians to Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be a third, together with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. For Adonai Tsevaot, or the Lord God of hosts, has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. And I really have this visual picture of when the prophet Isaiah is writing these words, I think he must have been scratching his head going, God's lost it this time. And I say that because he's speaking about a highway going between Egypt in the southwest all the way up to ancient Assyria in the Northeast. And those were two impressive, important empires at the time that the prophet was writing. And they had been since the time of Abraham. And there probably has never been a time historically, even until today, where they have been at peace with each other. Those two nations were always trying to gain the upper hand, to gain more land, and little Israel was in the center of these two huge empires and they would fight over her, not because they wanted her, but because they wanted the highway that went between Egypt and Assyria. And so Israel was in, in the center and whoever controlled the highway in the center would basically control the entire wealth of the ancient world. So this was a crucial highway. Imagine that all the trade routes were there, um, all the spices and the gold and all the important things. But not only that, ideas would be passed along this highway. Religions would be passed along this highway. So it's no surprise whatsoever that the place that Yeshua chose to reveal himself to mankind 
was right in the middle of it because if you want to give a message you want to give it on a crossroads in a place that people are going to go and take this message to the ends of the earth he sure doesn't want anyone to perish right he wants everyone to come to everlasting life and so he he placed his story right in the middle of it but it's probably not only right in the middle of this highway it's probably also right in the middle of the Garden of Eden because we have the borders in scripture too in the book of Genesis. And it's right in the middle of where Abraham walks all the way from the northeast right down to the southwest. If you think about it, Yeshua also walks this highway when he is forced to go down to Egypt, when he is fleeing uh, the persecution from King Herod, when he wants to kill the baby boys, just like Pharaoh did when the Israelites are um, in Egypt. So it's absolutely counterintuitive that one day this highway is going to be a place of worship, of blessing, and of peace between these two nations, three nations. But in order for this to take place, we have to have these three parts. We have to have Egypt, we have to have Assyria, and we have to have Israel. Now, Egypt and Israel are a little bit more obvious. Israel is still not yet restored to her biblical borders. And perhaps Egypt still has some restoration to, to take place. Um, they have uh, several different languages there, but one of which is Coptic, and that's generally the language that the Christians are using. Israel, of course, uses Hebrew, but at the time of Yeshua, she was using also another language. And that language came about when Israel was exiled to Babylon to the east. She began to speak the language that was spoken there when she was in exile. And when she came back, she brought that language and also the written characters. The modern Hebrew that we read from today is not actually Hebrew at all. It's Aramaic. And I think this language is actually a strong key to the restoration of this empire or this people called the Assyrians, because it's not speaking about Syria, it's speaking about Assyria. So Assyria at its peak would have been a vast empire, would certainly have included Iran and Iraq and Kurdistan and these nations. And those nations formally would not have spoken Arabic. So I think part of the restoration is of the languages and the ethnic identities of the people that actually live in that region. And is this taking place today? Is there any sign of this or is Catherine just making this up? Well, actually, yes, there is. There is a huge resurgence in interest in this language. There are both Jewish people that speak Aramaic and there are also Christians who speak Aramaic. And again, this should be no surprise. If we think about Yeshua, when he is on the Lake of Galilee, at one point we have in scripture, he crosses over to the other side. And when we're back in the nations, we maybe miss the significance of him crossing over the other side. What is he actually doing when he crosses over to the other side? He's basically crossing from Jewish territory to Gentile territory. And it's as if he wanted to make sure that there was a witness of the gospel, witness of the revelation of Yeshua, not only to each one of the Jewish tribes, but also to every other people group of the region. And it really struck me when I was thinking about this this morning or last night, I don't remember when, that he didn't only care for the Jewish people, he didn't only care for the Gentile people, he even cared for the people group 
who were oppressing him. And I think this may develop into a key for the days in which we're living in. He didn't actually deal with the politics of this empire that was repressing his people. Rather, he targeted individuals within that empire who he knew were open to the gospel and brought them to salvation. I'm thinking about the Roman um, centurion, and I'm thinking about at Caesarea when um, an entire family of Roman soldiers is uh, baptized. This is astonishing. He, he has gone specifically to every people group. So if I get back to him crossing over the lake, he goes over to the other side and he performs two miracles. He performs um, the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, and he also performs the miracle of the casting out of the demons from the man who is named Legion. But what happens then? That's a strong witness. That must have birthed a group of people on that side of the lake who recognized him as, you as the Messiah. Is there any proof of this? Well, I think there is. If we think about the Apostle Paul, he's going to Damascus before he has uh, received Yeshua as Messiah, before he's understood who he is, to persecute the Christians there. If he's going to persecute the Christians there, that means there are already Christians there. It's a bit obvious, right? But yeah. sometimes we don't process this. There are already Christians in Damascus. Where did they come from? Probably they came from the witness of Yeshua when he crossed over to the other side of the lake. Probably some of those people living in the Decapolis city of Susita or Hippos, it had a couple of different names, it basically means a horse, it's not that far from Damascus. Probably they went to the other Decapolis city of Damascus, bringing the good news with them, and that's why Paul, a few decades later, is going there to persecute them. Why am I bothering to explain all of this? Because the ancient destiny of the Middle East is that these are the most ancient Christian nations on the face of the earth. And yet today we think of them as being Arabic speaking Muslim nations. That is not the destiny that God has for them. That is a false identity that has been placed on them. If we think about Lebanon, Yeshua went up to Tyre and Sidon, right? He went to the, the widow's son. He went all the way up there. He wanted to make sure that there was a gospel witness up there. There was a gospel witness in Egypt with the ancient Coptic church. There was a gospel witness in the region of Assyria. It would have spread across in that direction. So these people today who are waking up, for example, I, I can give a specific example of Father Gabriel Nadaf, who lives in um, Nazareth, has a church there. He went to the Israeli government and he said, I do not want Arab on my passport. Not because there is anything wrong with being Arab. The Arab people are precious, just like every other people group on the face of the earth. But God is so specific. He said, I want there to be people from every tribe and tongue in heaven. In order for there to be people from every tribe and tongue in heaven, each one of them has to be preserved. They can't be mixed in. Their identity cannot be destroyed. And with so many people in these days, it's like God is peeling back the layers of our ethnic identity to actually show us who, who we are inside. And this is so beautiful, not to say that one nation is exalted over another, but to say that they are all precious in his sight and every single tribe, every single tongue is important in his sight. And he is removing the false identities and revealing who these people really are. So he goes to the Israeli government and he says, I want to be known as an Aramean Christian. This is amazing. This is 
Isaiah 19, because Isaiah 19 cannot be fulfilled until the Assyrian people come forth. And they're coming forth and they're saying, hang on a minute, we've spoken Assyrian as our prayer language at home, but why are we not keeping it as a spoken language? In Bethlehem, there are many believers that I know that say, hang on, we have to pass this to the next generation. This is our heritage. This is precious. This is special. And they're teaching it to their children. Again, this is something that is really awakening in the times that we live in. And we think about the miraculous restoration of the, the Hebrew language after it was dead for almost 2,000 years. But there's also another language being restored as we speak, and that's Aramaic. And these are two of the languages of Yeshua. And I think these are two of the keys to the Isaiah 19 highway. But he's speaking about how people will travel on an actual highway. Is that happening? Well, yes, it is. And um, they're not only traveling on it, they're worshiping. Are they worshiping in Egypt? Well, I believe that there are more than 20, 24 seven houses of prayer in Egypt. There are incredible, huge churches like the, the cave church where more than 3000 people are gathering to worship together. In the land of Israel, are there prayer houses? Yes, there's again, more than 20, 24 seven houses of prayer and intercession. Some are staffed by Arabic speaking Christians, some are staffed by Messianic Jews, some are mixed between that combination and people from the nations as well. The people from Egypt are coming up to the land of Israel and they are worshiping and they are being baptized in the Jordan, or well, they were until we closed our borders. I think the enemy was not so happy about all of this happening and he said enough. <laughs> but I'm quite sure that God is gonna open the borders so that this can continue. There are people coming from a refugee camp just north of Mosul where they have also built a prayer house. They shouldn't even be allowed in the land and we shouldn't be allowed into their land, but God placed someone in the Ministry of Interior there that actually allows Israelis from the prayer houses here to go and be a blessing in the refugee camp and to worship together with them. So we can really see the seeds and the beginnings of the building of this highway in the center of the earth as a blessing. And it's so exciting to see this happening and to be just a small part of this. In the prayer house that I'm connected with, we sing in, in Hebrew and in Arabic and in English and in, in many other languages together with all of these different people groups. And um, there are so many ministries in the Middle East that are connected with um, and committed to helping to build um, this highway. So uh, do I remember correctly that um, when we were looking out over the Isaiah Highway, Isaiah 19 Highway with you, and you said that a generation is rising up where it's being taught in schools and a generation is rising up to speak Aramaic in, in a way that the generation before hadn't? Oh, in terms of the language, yes. Yeah, that's what I just mentioned in Bethlehem where there are parents that are saying this needs to be spoken as well as just just a prayer and we need to pass this on to our children. So I personally know families where, uh, where that is the case. So it's really very exciting. Well, in true generation to generation fashion, <laughs> so wind this up by saying, you know, God is preparing this next generation across the earth it seems there's a generation rising up that he is positioning for the return of his son uh, whether whatever nation it is and and i think when i looked over there and you said that to us it was just so impacting to see god positioning this generation the generation coming 
um, to work out these purposes that he has promised. And listening to you talking about it just always inspires me over and over. I've got tears in my eyes. <laughs> I can hear your voice going. It's just it's just so moving, Catherine. And, and I, I could sit and listen to you or we could sit and listen to you forever and we take the opportunity to do that when we can. And I know that you have just dipped into this and, and any one of these things that you've talked about, you could talk about forever. So I hope we're going to hear more of you, from yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we can always have you back and maybe we'll have you back as well and we can do Ezekiel 37. <laughs> 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 Everyone, people who are listening may have gone, oh, I want to hear about Ezekiel 37. <laughs> we'll do that next time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we heard the rest of Ezekiel 36, quite honestly. <laughs> I think we took her on a detour. <laughs> <laughs> but detours are always good with Catherine. So. Yeah, well, if we're talking about a highway, detours with the cars, take a detour, you know, it yeah. all works out. <laughs> so thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. Appreciate you. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If this impacted you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or another podcast platform.